0: in verse 8 through verse 10. Colossians 2, 8 through 10. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ, because in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and because, implied. You all are complete in him. So my title this morning is complete in Christ. The heresies that are knocking at the door and giving pressure to the church of Colossae as we've mentioned the gnostic heresy which is going beyond Christ, the secret elite knowledge which they were being enticed to go beyond the knowledge and wisdom of Christ in whom in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and Now in chapter 2, Paul will begin to address the error of Judaism, and he wants them to beware of philosophy, the love of wisdom, and empty deception that would draw them away from Christ rather than to be spoiled or captive by Christ. And the two specific he mentions is through tradition of men, the Jewish elders, believed that Moses not only gave the written law, but an oral law, oral instruction that was passed on by tradition by the elders. Of course, this was a man-made scheme and religion. And Jesus said, you uh, set aside the commandments of God for the doctrines and commandments of men. And in Mark 7, he refers to that as the tradition of men. And Paul will highlight those at the end of this chapter. The rudiments of the world, the rudiments meaning either The elements of the material universe or the elementary first principles of things, which the latter is what Paul means here. The the first principles of something, of of a science or system, like ABCs, are the first principles of the English language. Those are rudimentary, they're elementary. The word rudiments in the English language can mean any Undeveloped form of something. So the Jewish people were trying to remain, as we said last Sunday, in the period of adolescence, first principles, the ABCs of religion. And they had studied the ABCs, and now Jesus comes and he tells them how to put all the letters together to form the sentence, I am the Messiah. But they're so captivated by the letters of the Mosaic age, that they reject and kill Jesus Christ. That's the two forms, the two philosophies, and the love of that kind of wisdom. The love of wisdom is not wrong when it's in Christ, but this is for which Paul is warning them and he's warning us to beware lest we're carried away like spoils of the war. That the army comes and invades and conquers and easily sweeps all the spoils away and captures them for their own use. As Paul says, beware. And then he gives two reasons why we should not be captured by philosophy and vain deceit, but rather be captivated by Christ because in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. A statement of His deity and sufficiency. And because you in Him are complete. Five ways this morning, time permitting, you are complete in Christ. Number one, you are completely filled in Him. Perfect passive verb complete. God did it, passive, you are. Perfect, a complete and total filling to the brim. Not one millimeter or ounce of filling can be added to your completeness. Paul wants the church to understand that when he uses the word in his prayer in Colossians 1 9 and 10, where he says that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you would walk worthy of the Lord into all pleasing being fruitful in every good work, that we would be filled. We would know what from Colossians 2, 3. In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge have been deposited in you. And you're full to the brim with regard to this wisdom and knowledge because you're complete. You're attached. You're in Christ. Beware lest any man think deceive you into thinking there's some wisdom, there's some philosophy that you need outside of being totally filled by Christ. It's complete, it's done, but there's an ongoing result. Last Sunday we mentioned that you are completely filled with the love of God. God cannot pour into you a single more ounce of love. Perfect tense. Ephesians three eighteen that you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height, and to know what? The love of Christ, which passes knowledge, so that you might be filled, same word, different, different tense there, right? That you might be being filled with what? The fullness of God. Now, how do we put those two together? Paul here says, you have been completely filled. You can't get any more than Christ. But then with regard to the love of Christ, for which he says in Ephesians 3 that he prays, rooted, grounded in His love. Those are perfect tense. You might be filled with the love that you've been completely filled with. Think of it as a diffuser. The word complete here means filled, diffused, Now think of it as a diffuser, an oil diffuser. The receptacle in the diffuser is completely filled with oil to the top. You filled it. God's filled it. You cannot get another drop of oil in the diffuser. It's complete. It's full. It's there. The only thing that is left to do is to diffuse the aroma of the oil throughout your soul and into your life. That diffusing does not deplete your completeness. The receptacle is always full. Why? Not that you're always loving as you should. Not that every word out of your mouth is always loving. But that you're complete. Completely having been filled by Christ, the ongoing result is the diffusion of the filling of the aroma of that love that's in you and an experiential way by faith so that out of your life comes what? Love, wisdom, knowledge. Where do you get it? You're complete. You have been filled. You're full. And so sanctification, in part, is the diffusing of the aroma of Christ in your life which you have already been completely filled with. That's glorious. And the implication that Paul wants us to understand, and them as well, is that don't be led away. You lack nothing. You have all. You're full. You're complete in wisdom and knowledge and love. All that needs to be done is to tap into. Or is where Paul is going, Colossians 3 1. If you then be risen with Christ, seek. Seek it. How does this aroma come out? How does this diffusing happen? Seek those things which are above. Go after. Be determined. Give effort. Go after God and then you'll find what you're complete in begins to overflow little by little in your life. Number two, verse 10. And you are complete in Him which is the head of all principality and power. You are complete in His headship. And His headship here, we learned He's head of the body in chapter 1. Now He's head of all principality and power. This is a reference in the Bible, it could be earthly principalities, government rulers and powers, but here the reference is the same as verse 15, he has disarmed principalities and powers, these are angelic beings. Now why is this here? Because a variant of the Gnostic heresy believed that God is holy and just, but the universe has evil in it. Therefore, a holy and just God could not have created something with evil. So they believe that from God emanated. Emanation means something that flows from a source, but not the same as the source. So they believe out of God there were a series of emanations, lesser spiritual beings. So First came one, then a second one. And then it goes on and on until you get to a, an emanation, a lesser being, that is so removed from God that they were the agent That spirit was the agent of creation and then they could take on human flesh because they believed all matter was evil. So this lesser being came and inhabited Christ's body and then he left him. How does Paul counter that? In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is totally and completely God. You cannot be a Christian and reject the deity of Christ according to The Bible. And so Paul is countering the worship of angels and lesser beings with what? You're complete in His headship and He's head over all principality and power. Why would we worship then angels? So we find in Colossians 1.16 that He created all angels. The good angels, elect angels, 1 Timothy chapter 5. And the non-elect angels, the one that did not keep their first estate but fell. So there's elect and non-elect angels. In Colossians 1.16, He created all things, whether visible or invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All of them, whether they be human or lesser beings called angels, Christ has created them all. He is head over all. So in some real sense, having created principalities and powers, For Him, by Him, and by Him they consist. There's some way in which angelic beings were created for you. How is that? Because you're in the head. And you're complete in Him. And if they were created for the head, they're created for the body. Now how would that work for the good angels? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13. When did God say at any time to angels, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Never said that. What did he say when the firstborn came into the world? Let all the angels worship him. Hebrews 1, six. Are not they angels, all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation? That's you. Did you know that angels, good angels, are your servants? They are sent from God to minister to you. Why then would we be captivated by the worship of angels? in the Gnostic derivative of lesser beings, and then that would include angels because they're lesser beings than God. No, angels are sent to minister to those that shall be heirs of eternal life. Some have entertained angels unawares. And so they're your servants because they're the servants of the head who is Jesus Christ, and you're in Jesus Christ. Angels are your servants. What about the demonic angels? We find in Ephesians 6.10, where Paul is speaking of the whole armor of God, where he would say, put on the whole armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil. And he would say about those angelic beings, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The chaos in our culture, beloved, we're not wrestling with people. We're not contending and striving with people. That's so important for us to remember. So, human instruments, human weapons will do no good. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Angelic host. Now, here they're the evil ones, the demonic host. Principalities and powers, <clears throat> the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. So, these angelic beings for which Christ is over, the demonic world, is at enmity with Christ, so they're your enemies. So we should guard against any idea, any temptation, that principalities and powers are putting before us because they're enemies. And they would be very much involved in you worshiping angels because they don't want Christ to be worshipped. 1 Corinthians 6, 3 Know you not that the saints shall judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How then much more the things that pertain to this life? The church at Corinth is having struggles and conflict. They need someone to judge, so they send them off to the secular unbelieving court system. Paul says, can't you judge in these small matters pertaining to life? Do you not know you will judge the demonic angels? How is that? Because you're in the head. And he is head over all principality and power. So when he judges angels, you and I somehow are going to be part of that judgment. Now picture yourself in a courtroom. In the court, here's the judge on the bench and he's about to strike the gavel and give his judgment. And we know his judgment will be condemnation against the demonic angels. But you're not sitting in the audience looking up at the judge. You're behind him at the bench. You're peering over His shoulder. And because you're complete in Him, you are with Him in the judgment of angels. Why then would, be so, would we be so easily captured and carried away with the worship of lesser beings, angels themselves, which is so often part of the demonic world's purpose to draw us away from Christ to the worship of lesser beings Lesser things, created world, and all the ways that we're so easily beguiled and captured. And why are these false teachers so enamored with worshiping angels? Verse 18, Let no man beguile you of your reward, your prize, that you have in salvation in Christ, in a voluntary humility, voluntary means delight and pleasure, If you delight in your humility, what do we call that? Pride, right? It's just a false humility. And worshiping of angels. Intruding into those things which they know not, vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. That's arrogance and pride. Why? Not holding the head. Why is it that you and I would be Captured and carried away captive by some error, by some heresy. Not holding the head. Not in possession of His wisdom and knowledge that we're to be increasing in. Colossians 1. Not in possession of His love. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That you being rooted and grounded in His love. Rooted, anchored like a tree, roots settled, bending, moving, but never uprooted. Why? <clears throat> his love. These men <clears throat> don't know this wisdom. These men don't have possession of His love because these false teachers are not complete in Christ. But you are, as a believer. So Paul says, you're complete in his headship. And he's over all principality and power. He's over the devil. He's over the demonic world. He's over the good angels. So the implication is, by holding on to the head, we're not so easily moved by powerful beings called angels. We're not so easily tempted to a false worship, tempted by beings that are fallen and demonic. Why? We're complete in our head. Number three, verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with Him through the faith of the operation or work of God who hath raised Him from the dead. Now you are complete in His salvation. The salvation spoken of in verse 11 is circumcision. Now what is that about? this circumcision is not physical circumcision. How do we know that? Not made with hands. Every physical circumcision is made by a rabbi or a doctor or some medical person with hands. Not this one. So it's not physical circumcision. It's not baptism. Somebody says, okay, when you're Buried with him in baptism, when you go into the water, then you receive this circumcision, whatever it is. Not made with hands. So some would use this passage to conclude that baptism is the means of a regeneration or new birth. Every baptism I've ever seen is done with hands. Not this one. Not made with hands. So what is Paul talking about? Well, you remember in Genesis 17, we see the first circumcision of Abraham and his offspring commanded by God. It was a sign of belonging to the covenant people of God called Israel. But God soon after made clear that another kind of circumcision had to take place deeper than skin level. And you just heard, heard two passages relating to it. Back in De- Deuteronomy 10 15. Moses, before they go into the land of Canaan, would say to them, The Lord God is, or the Lord, the heaven of the heavens is the Lord's, and all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight to thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, above all people, even as it is this day. Why did the Lord choose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their seed? Was it because all the other nations have their gods and Jews have their God? No, the heaven and the heaven of the heavens belong to God. All nations are His. Only the Lord had a delight. It was springing from the sovereign delight of God to put His love on a nation. And that's why He did it. Now what was the sign of belonging to this covenant nation that God had chosen? Circumcision, physical. All right, let's talk about the new covenant, not the old one. There's a new covenant people for which God only has a delight to set His love upon them according to His good pleasure. Ephesians 6, three verses tell us that. Out of the sheer delight of God's sovereign pleasure, He makes choice, of a people, what is the sign of belonging to those people? It's not baptism. This is one of the reasons we are Baptist. It is not baptism. It is spiritual circumcision. Verse 17, Deuteronomy 10. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no no more stiff-necked. What's God saying? There's something deeper that has to happen here. Can God command a man to do something he cannot do? Let's take a test. Circumcise your heart. Physical or spiritual, take your pick. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. God is communicating something deep at the level of the heart has to happen, which will be the sign of the new covenant for the chosen people of God. You can't do it, but he can. And he will. And he does. He does. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord God, thy God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to what? To love the Lord thy God with all your heart and your soul that you may live, implied what? Forever. The new covenant sign of belonging to the covenant people of God is not baptism. It is spiritual circumcision or faith. Now, why am I equating spiritual circumcision with faith? Because when you're circumcised, you come to faith in Christ. And when the sign of the covenant, new covenant, is revealed, what do we do with that person? Dunk them. We don't get the cart before the horse. Romans 2, Paul says, He is not a Jew that is one outward and is circumcision of the flesh. He is a Jew that is one inward and circumcision is of the heart. So Paul is starting to identify the new covenant people, not by baptism, but by circumcision of the heart. Philippians chapter 3 verse 3 or 4. Beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the concision. Concision means a jagged mutilation or a botched circumcision. It didn't go well. What's Paul saying? These false teachers, dogs, evil workers, concision... Who claim to be Jews, who claim to be circumcised, are just a mutilated version. Now, watch the contrast. We are the circumcision, for we are the circumcision. Now, what's the sign of belonging to the covenant people? There are three here that we will reduce to one worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, boast in Him, no confidence in the flesh. If we were to reduce those to one thing, what would you call it? Faith. By faith we worship. By faith we boast. By faith we have no confidence in ourselves, but in Christ. When that sign is given through spiritual circumcision, baptism takes place. We don't get the cart before the horse. Because the covenant sign in the New Testament is not baptism. It is... Faith, Because we're regenerated, we're spiritually circumcised, we're, we're given the new birth, and we're effectually called to faith in Christ. And Paul says in verse 12, Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God. Baptism is that symbol, that picture, that drama enacted of a reality that's already taking place called faith. In the operation of God. Baptism shows that we were buried with Him. We died with Him. We were buried with Him. We were raised together with Him. Faith is that sign we find throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament, that baptism is never administered. Do you mean never? Never administered unless the sign of the covenant is given. What? I believe Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory. Of God the Father. How is it that you were actually in Christ? When those nails were driven through His hands, they were driven for you. When that spear pierced His heart, it was pierced for you. How is it that you were there? Paul says you were. For the love of Christ constraineth us, for, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, all died in Him. We call it particular, historical, incarnate redemption. What's particular about it? Your names were graven on His heart. Like the twelve stones of the high priest's breastplate, representing all twelve tribes of Israel. Your name was graven on His heart. Your names were graven on His palm. When He went to the cross, you were in Him in a particular way. It wasn't just a mass of people. It was His bride. It was His people. And so when the nails were driven, they were driven on your behalf, whoever died with Him. When He went into the grave, He went into the grave on your behalf, whose ever names were written on His heart. When He came up out of the grave, He came out of the grave on your particular behalf. Because we do not believe in double jeopardy. Okay. If Christ died, then you're saved. When you're brought to faith in Christ, your salvation is complete. So let's look at three, three phrases here Paul will use to, to speak about in what way uh, salvation is complete. First, verse 11, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. means to strip away the body of the sins of the flesh. Right? In what way was the body of the sins stripped when you were spiritually circumcised, came to faith in Christ? Well, the song, there in the ground His body lay. Light of light by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Why? Because I am his and he is mine. Why? Because I'm complete in him, bought by the precious blood of Christ. What Paul means here is sin's lost its grip on you. As Paul playing into the hand of the ascetic heresy, which they believed all matter was evil, so if you really want to be purged, you just, yeah, right, Paul, you've got to get rid of things of the body. I mean, you've just got to deny yourself and get rid of it. That's the way to deal with evil. So what would they say? First Timothy 4. <clears throat> Forbidding marriage and abstaining from meats. The Judaistic, Gnostic heresy would encourage minimalist. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's just a way to express what Paul is talking about. Minimalist. Don't get married. Don't do that. Don't taste that. Don't touch that. Stop that. So, Paul, we agree with you. you got to put off all the body of the sins of the flesh. That's not what Paul is talking about. Two places. Colossians 3, 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Your members, your body, which is on the earth, on the earth speaks of your body is the abode and the instrument of what? Corrupt desires. And then he will list several sensual, corrupt desires, such as fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection or desires, evil concupiscence, <clears throat> and covetousness, which is all rooted in desire which is idolatry. Paul means that these desires that were to put off and kill have lost their grip. To put away means to be stripped. When I was a young boy, about six years old, I used to play a game with my grandfather. I'd get between his legs, he sat on a chair, elbows on his knees, he would grip his fingers together, and my job was to try to get out. I would put my whole body On his arms and pry with all my strength, yes, I was six, to get one finger to budge and never would. I don't think I could have at 20 years old. That's what sin has done to you. The curse of sin has so gripped your heart and your affections that you cannot get out. You cannot. Unless you're circumcised with a circumcision by Christ alone. By Christ alone. So what Paul means is, you have a complete salvation because the power of sin's curse has been stripped. It's power, it's dominion. Listen to this phrase in Romans 6.6. 6. You may remember this passage. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sins might be destroyed. Romans 6.6, 6, body of sins. Colossians 2.11, body of the sins of the flesh. Same body. What's Paul talking about? So that henceforth we should not serve sin. How do we serve sin? Verse 12 of Romans 6, In the lust thereof. The way we serve sin is we serve our own lust and pleasures which are corrupt and depraved. To have complete salvation by being united to Christ means now... Those corrupt desires have lost their dominion, their rule, their mastery over you. So Paul would say in Romans 6, Sin shall not have dominion over you. It shall not reign over you. Why? Because you're not under law. You're under grace. Grace brings what? The power of Christ to strip the dominion of sin. It's dominion. Second phrase. Through the faith, verse 12, of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. Sin's grip and the penalty of sin is stripped. What is the penalty of sin? The wrath of God forever. The wages of sin is death. Sin's payoff and wages has been stripped because you're complete in Christ with a complete salvation. How do we know this from this phrase? Faith in the operation of God, which is what He raised Him from the dead. What does that mean? What do you believe when you believe in the resurrection of Christ? Do you just believe well God has the power? He's just you know He can. Well, he is God. He can just put matter together, bring life into the body. There He is. Come up, sit beside me. That, of course, that happened. No. Jesus' body very literally would have rotted if it weren't for one thing: His righteousness. Proven by resurrection. And God's wrath satisfied. Proven by resurrection. If you believe that God's wrath has been satisfied, what do you believe? There's not an ounce of wrath left for you. That's, is that complete salvation? There is not one drop. In the vessel of God's wrath. There's not an, an ounce of humidity or moisture or condensation in the vessel of His wrath because Christ completely consumed it and bore it on our behalf. Now would it be right for God to bear or for Jesus to bear the wrath on your behalf particularly and then at the judgment God says you're going to have to bear it. That would be a travesty of justice in any human court. Any human court. If a judge is good, there is no double jeopardy. If the penalty's paid for a person, it's done. Which points back to particular redemption. It's finished, it's over. You have complete salvation because you believe in faith in the operation of God who raised him from the dead, and God's crying out, Listen, it's done. You don't, have to, you don't have to be concerned about my wrath ever again. Jesus bore it for you. Hallelujah. That's wonderful. The third statement in verse 13 And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath quickened us together with him. Made us alive. That's the spiritual circumcision. What does he do? United us to Christ by faith. We are quickened together. So, what that means is. Sin has lost the grip of its presence on us. and You say, now I object, which you should, right? For two reasons. You know sin is still present with you. And number two, Paul said so in Romans chapter 7, didn't he? He said, when I would do good, evil is present with me. How then can we say the grip of sin's presence is stripped? The fact that sin is still present with us and we struggle with it is no argument against it being stripped any more than the fact that you have not been glorified. And yet Paul said what? You have been. In Romans 8. Whom he justified, them he also, past tense, glorified. Now I'm I'm sorry, I'm looking at you. and You don't look anything like glorified. You just look like normal people to me. And and I to you. Why would Paul say it's done? Because the presence of sin is stripped. It's as good as done. Just like your bodies are as good as out of the grave. Because in the purpose of God and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's going to happen. No question. Paul gives a few questions just if anything tries to enter our minds concerning the opposite about our glorification. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. That answers that question. Who is he that condemneth? A lot of people, if they know me at all, can condemn. It is Christ that is risen. Case closed. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? A lot of things seem to come in and do that. You're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Paul is persuaded. That neither life, death, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, any other creature, disease, cancer, pain, sorrow, Alzheimer's, dementia, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You've been quickened together with Christ. Next objection. If salvation is complete, what about my sanctification? Isn't that part of my salvation? It is. But because you have complete salvation in Christ, your sanctification, your holiness, your growth will not add a single iota to your completeness in Christ. Now the Judaizers would want to tell you that being circumcised and self-denial and observing these holy days and feasts and meats and all that they do would contribute to it. But Paul is saying if you're quickened together with Christ, then your sanctification flows out of that union and that position. You'll never contribute. You'll never get more holy than you are now positionally. You'll never get more right with God. Never. You can only experience the diffusing of the love of God in your life called holiness. And that diffusing called love only demonstrates what? You've been quickened together with Him. And it's God's plan to further fill you out with the clothing that He's already robed you with. That ought to give you peace and rest. See? Your striving should cease in an anxious, worried way, right? Why? Because you're complete you have complete salvation in Christ. and your sanctification is only the outflow of union with the branch and the vine for which the, the fruit comes as we struggle and fight sin. And so, beloved, you won't add anything to your salvation. Now, if that's true, beware, lest anyone beguile you with philosophy and vain deceit. You're complete in Christ. You have a complete salvation, nothing to be added to it. Number four, I think. Complete forgiveness in Him. Verse 13, the last part Having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. Complete and total forgiveness of all trespasses. What about tomorrow? All trespasses. What about next week? All trespasses. Paul uses the word blotting, which is X out, Away from. And a Greek word that means to anoint, to smear together. It means to erase or obliterate. Not like the dry erase board in your house. We had one for years. Our kids would do their math problems on it. When they got bored, they would draw funny faces and things like that. You would go and you would erase the board. Spray some solution on it. Erase it. But you could always see a faint... Appearance of the numbers or the funny faces or whatever's on the board. Not here. The blotting out is a complete obliteration of the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way nailing it to his cross. Paul uses a word for handwriting. I think this is the only place in the New Testament which means a note given to someone with a deposit of money whereby the note signified they would repay the money at a later date. Metaphorically, the handwriting of ordinances is the Mosaic law. And the note that you've been handed by the law is what? It's a note of your guilt. It's a note of your debt. The law was not a note given to someone to say, look, if you can just do this and pay God back, you'll be okay, but I'll ush you into glory. Whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become what? Guilty. The law is a handwritten note of God of your guilt so that it would be the schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. And what do we find? The handwriting of ordinances, the Mosaic law, and all that it entails has been obliterated. The guilt has been removed. How? Nailing it to His cross. Two things nailed to the cross. The precious blood or the precious body of Jesus Christ. And your guilt. It's nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. Can you sing that? You can if you're in Christ. And you can mean it. Because you've been given complete forgiveness. Then why do we need to ask forgiveness? If you're saying all of my sins future are forgiving, that's exactly what Paul's saying. Why do we have to confess our sins? As John would say in 1 John, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Suppose you go to God and confess a sin that's not already been forgiven. He would not be faithful to His name, nor would He be just to forgive it. Why? what basis are you asking Him to forgive it? Surely on the basis of doing better tomorrow, right? If your sin has not already been forgiven by the blood of Christ when you approach your father to ask Him for forgiveness, on what basis do you want Him to forgive? I'll never do that again. That's a lie. I'll do better tomorrow. No, you won't. The basis is... It's already been nailed to his cross forever. The fruit of that redemption is you're going to your Father again and again. And he's faithful and just to his name and to the cross to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. On what basis? The righteousness of the shed blood of Christ that's already been done. So we just say, Father, forgive me on the basis of Jesus went to the cross. To forgive me for all trespasses. So I'm asking you to forgive me for this sin on that basis. Now he's faithful to the cross. He is just and right to forgive you and to cleanse you from something you've already been cleansed for. The ongoing cleansing and forgiveness and confession is just the fruit and the proof that all trespass has been forgiven. All forgiven. You have complete forgiveness, beloved. That's glorious. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Why? You've been completely forgiven by Christ. And lastly, complete triumph in Christ. Verse 15, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Spoiled is disarmament. Disarmament is a reduction or limitation or... Obliteration of military weapons, like nuclear disarmament. They may be reduced, they may be limited, but they're here to stay, aren't they? No country is going to fully give them up. Paul says Christ in it, in Himself, in the cross, in verse 14, has disarmed the demonic angelic host principalities and powers, there's the two words again. He made a public display openly like a Roman triumphant. And that's the the Greek word here. In Rome, once a general conquered and subdued and disarmed his enemy, he came triumphantly riding into the streets of Rome with all the enemies captive behind him, opening them to public humiliation and shame. But now we need to see the paradox of the cross and how Jesus did this. The principalities and powers conspired in their own triumph over Christ, didn't they? Through two great powers of His day. What was the greatest Military and governmental power on the earth. Rome. What was the greatest religious power on the earth? Judaism. And Acts 4.27 tells us, For the truth against thy holy child Jesus, Herod, Jew, king, Pilate, Roman governor, Gentiles, Romans, and the people of Israel, Judaism, were gathered together. Why were they gathered? They quote from Psalm 2 and Acts 4. What is Psalm 2? Say, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. We will not be ruled by any sovereign. Is that not the message of our culture today? Let us break all ropes and chains and cast them asunder. But He that sitteth in the heavens... he laughed, didn't he? They were gathered together, and what did they do? Perhaps C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia depicted this scene vividly when Aslan was dragged with contempt and scorn and scoffing rude by the demonic host represented by ghastly demons in glee about to celebrate a triumph over Aslan. He's dragged, he's stripped, And the knife is plunged by the wicked witch. And what happens? There's a triumph. They celebrate dragging Aslan, representing Christ in that book, behind them. Now here's the paradox. In their triumph, He triumphed. As the prophecy tells us in Genesis 3.15, Thou shalt strike His heel, when the fangs of the serpent went into the hill of the Son of God on the cross, that very bite on the heel crushed the life out of Him. And what did Jesus do? In His ascension, He publicly exposed their triumph as a sham, a disgrace, and He exposed them to contempt. In a blaze of glory, He ascended and sat down at the right hand of God. What shock they must have had. If the rulers of this world had known who Christ was, they wouldn't have crucified Him, Paul said. What a shock! What terror! They celebrated a short-lived triumph, and in their triumph, Christ crushed the life out of them. And now what? Tied to the spokes and the chariots of His wheels are all the demonic world. They've been vanquished. They've been conquered. And we celebrate a triumph. And now we sing what? Up from the grave he arose with a mighty what? Triumph or his foes. Do you believe that? Now, what is the application that we're going to look at Lord willing next Sunday? Verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you, stand as an umpire over you. Why? In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Beloved, you are complete in his love, in his wisdom in His headship, in His salvation, in His forgiveness, in His triumph. Don't let it happen because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Are you in Christ? Have you trusted this great salvation? Have you surrendered all to Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and hope in Him? If not, today is the day of salvation. If so, then you should be rejoicing and singing hallelujah to the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we praise your great and holy name. You're a glorious God. We don't deserve the least of your mercies. We so often think of ourselves as needing something more than what we have. We're so easily tempted. We're so easily moved. We're so easily spoiled and taken captive by the message of the world. It's a man-centered message that draws us away after Christ because we lose sight that we are complete in You. So Lord, we confess that sin and we ask You to bless us to live in that reality more and more, resting in You, knowing that salvation is done. And that, Lord, all that awaits us is the final removal of the presence of sin and the glorification of our bodies forever, where we'll sing hallelujah to the Lamb forever and ever. And so we say with John, come Lord Jesus. We say hallelujah and praise be to thy great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.